You're listening to Fence Posts, Foundations for the Christian Life. Fence Posts is a teaching ministry of Pastor Mike Woodruff of Christ Church Lake Forest. Study number two, the book. Several years ago, our nation went to bed with a presidential election up for grabs and woke up to chaos. The race between then-Vice President Al Gore and Texas Governor George W. Bush was so close, the difference between the two was so small, and the recount was so bizarre that it seemed that our country was a small high school and these two men were running for senior class president. For a while, it was mesmerizing. And like much of the country, I watched a year's worth of MSNBC and Hardball in a single week. But gradually, the drama grew nasty and much of the fun went away. Today, what I remember most about November 2000, besides the term hanging chads, is the exalted status given to the Constitution of the United States. What was surprising even more than how close an election could turn out to be were the significant powers ascribed to the words of our founding fathers. From the beginning of the saga, it was agreed that the final arbiter of truth was a 200-year-old document. It was not certain that the controversy would be elevated to this level, but everyone agreed that if the Supreme Court was asked what the Constitution had to say about the election, that that would be the final word. Game over, case closed. There was no higher source of authority. It's fascinating that in a world where virtually everything black and white has become gray, that our country would grant this type of power to the Constitution. But I'm thankful that they have, in part because it provided a helpful model for understanding the place of Scripture in the lives of Christians. In week one of Fence Posts, we noted that there are a lot of different ideas about ultimate reality out there, and that they all hinge on which source of truth you embrace— reason, revelation, tradition, or experience— In this study, you'll be introduced to the primary source of authority for the followers of Christ, that is, the Bible. What is the Bible? There are several ways to answer this question. The most obvious is to state that it's a book. In fact, sometimes it's simply called the book. I might add that, as books go, it is quite unique. Not only was it composed over the course of 1,600 years on three different continents and in three different languages— but it was also written by over 40 different writers. To its credit, you can add that it's the best-selling book of all time, that it has been published in more languages than anything else ever written, and that more books have been written about this book than any other. Finally, I will add at least one more accolade. The Bible is the most controversial collection of words in print. It has been banned, burned, and mocked more often than any other work. In fact, there is no close second. How is this possible? How could a book advocating care for the poor and love for your neighbor generate such a fuss? Well, the short answer is, it says a lot more than that. On its pages of scripture, you'll find statements about the nature of God and about the human condition. You'll find directives concerning marriage, war, government, and child rearing alongside advice about money, meaning, lust, and fidelity. The Bible even weighs in on how to treat your parents and whether or not you should sue your neighbor. Just about every controversial topic you can imagine is addressed at some point or the other. But promoting views about controversial topics is not what makes the Bible so controversial itself. Lots of books advocate far more disruptive views than the Bible does. The reason this book is more controversial than any other collection of words 
is because of what it claims about itself. The Bible claims to be the living, active, and supernatural revelation of God. It further claims to be the divinely inspired and final source of truth, to enjoy the authority of God, and to be the clear and absolute necessary guide for salvation and spiritual growth. These are not small claims. In fact, if the book were a person, he'd either be hailed as the greatest man to ever live or a megalomaniac of the first order. I believe that the Bible is all it claims to be, and I intend to do my best to persuade you that I'm right. But that is not my goal just yet. Right now, I'd simply like to briefly explain where the Bible came from and establish its remarkable claims. When you ask a young child where milk comes from, you're more likely to hear about the refrigerator than a cow. In fact, many kids are quite shocked to hear that a cow factors into the story at all. In a like manner, when you ask most adults where the Bible came from, you're likely to hear more about a church, a bookstore, or a hotel nightstand than the process of inspiration. In fact, some may be surprised to hear that God factors into the equation at all. But the book didn't just fall from the sky. How exactly did we get the Bible? The simple explanation follows these lines. The Bible is a collection of books that were written by several dozen authors down through the ages. The 39 books that comprise the Hebrew Bible, or the Old Testament, are a cross-section of historical books, prophetic works, and wisdom literature that were written over the course of 1,000 years, completed by 400 B.C., and in wide circulation in the Jewish world by the first century. These same books were then adopted as a package by the church, in large part because of the endorsement of Jesus himself. The 27 books that constitute the New Testament, which is comprised of the story of Christ's life, called the Gospels, the story of the early church, which is the book of Acts, a series of letters to various people in churches, called the Epistles, and the book of Revelation, were written between 45 and 95 A.D., these books were immediately copied and placed in circulation, but it was not until the 4th century, when some confusion arose over which books and letters were actually inspired, that they were organized in the fashion we know today. In most social settings, the ex that explanation is enough to pass you off as a bit of a Bible scholar, because it's far more than most people know, but it's hardly a complete answer. There's a lot more. The claim that is made by the book itself is that it is not simply a human work, but a divine one as well. In fact, most Christians believe that God is the author and that he supernaturally intervened in history in such a way that the very words he wanted to appear on the page are there for you to read. To understand this more fully, consider the eight claims the Bible makes about itself. Claim number one, the Bible claims to reveal God. Christianity is based on the idea that the creator of the universe is not silent, but rather that he has revealed aspects of himself to mankind. This means that when it comes to the questions about God, the origin and nature of mankind, the meaning of life, and the nature of truth, in other words, the seven questions that frame our worldview, we're not left to speculative philosophy, scientific discovery, or personal reflection. Instead, we're able to turn to God himself. In the Bible, he has revealed the answer to these questions and many more. If you've read the Bible, you know that this is true. Abraham did not discover God in a lab or deduce his existence through deductive reasoning. Instead, God revealed himself to Abraham. The same can be said for Moses, David, Mary, and Paul. 
These individuals may have been curious about God. They may have even set about to look for him. But the biblical account makes it clear that what they knew about God was based on what he chose to reveal to them. How exactly did this happen? How did, how does God make himself known? According to the Bible, there are two fundamental ways. The first is what theologians refer to as general or natural revelation, and the second is called special or supernatural revelation. General revelation refers to the awareness of God's existence and the basic understanding of his character and expectations, which are communicated through history, creation, and our conscience. It does not require a sacred text or supernatural insight. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that this information is not only available to everyone, but that ultimately you cannot help but know it. General Revelation teaches that deep down inside, everyone knows that there is a God. King David makes this point in Psalm 19 when he writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. In the first chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, Paul makes essentially the same point when he writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. In other words, deep down inside, everyone knows that there is a God and that there are ultimate standards of right and wrong. People may choose to deny him or ignore his moral code. But the Bible claims that God has revealed this information to everyone. It is available in the stars, the storyline of history, and your own conscience. The second way God makes himself known is called special revelation. This category is necessary because although general revelation is enough to know that God exists, it's not enough to know him in the way he desires to be known. Therefore, in addition to the knowledge of God that is available through natural means, God has also revealed aspects of himself to certain people through supernatural means. In the Old Testament, this includes things like speaking audibly from heaven, performing miracles, such as manifesting his presence in a burning bush or parting the Red Sea, and also speaking through his prophets. In the New Testament, special revelation is on display most fully in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In fact, Christ's birth is understood to be the climax of God's revelation because Jesus not only speaks for God, as the other prophets had done before him, but he is the word of God himself. The opening line of the book of Hebrews makes exactly this point. There we read, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In Jesus Christ, the word of God in the flesh, we have the fullest revelation of God possible. In addition to the person of Christ, the New Testament suggests that the supernatural revelation of God is found in the teaching of Christ, in the special miracles he and others performed, and in their written record. Claim number two, 
The Bible claims to record the words of God. In addition to being a record of God's special revelatory acts, the Bible also claims to record the words of God himself. We see this initially by all the quotations attributed directly to God, such as Genesis 12.1, which says, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Or Exodus 3.4, When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Or also, Matthew 3.16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. In all of these cases, the Bible suggests that God spoke audibly and the biblical writers captured his very words. A second way scripture claims to record the words of God is from the mouths of the prophets. Following their flight from Egypt, the Jewish people gathered at Mount Sinai to receive God's instruction. Exodus 20 indicates that at the time, God spoke directly to the people, but they were so terrified by his voice that they begged Moses to be their intermediary. Speak to us yourself and we will listen, they said, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. God agreed to honor that request, and throughout the rest of the Old Testament, he generally speaks through a designated spokesperson called a prophet. These are people who claim to speak for God and who are expected to be 100% correct 100% of the time they are speaking prophetically. The Old Testament is filled with statements from the prophets that are attributed to God. In fact, over 3,000 times we find the statement, Thus says the Lord preceding statements made by men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, Abadiah, and Elijah. We find a similar set of claims in the New Testament. Given the New Testament's claim that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, all of the words Jesus spoke are intended to be understood as the words of God. Additionally, after Pentecost, the apostles began to claim that what they wrote and said was inspired by God. We see this clearly in Paul's letters. In 1 Corinthians 14, 37, he writes, If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. In other words, I speak with the authority of God. If you disobey my words, you disobey God himself. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he writes, And we also thank God continually because... When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. In other words, the Apostle Paul claims that his own words, whether spoken or written, are actually the words of God, and the Bible claims to have captured them. Claim number three, the Bible claims to be the word of God. Now, closely related to the claim to be a record of both the ways God has revealed himself and the words he has spoken is an even bolder claim. The Bible claims that all of the words found in it are divinely inspired. In other words, it's not just the words in the quotations that matter. Scripture claims that God speaks to us through every word in all 66 books. Or to frame it a bit differently, Scripture says that what Scripture says, God says.
Paul makes this point in his second letter to Timothy, where he writes, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The key word here is God-breathed, which in the original script was thumendotos, a combination of theos, the Greek word for God, and neustos, the Greek word for breathing. Some have translated theonustos as inspiration, but a more accurate translation would actually be expiration. That is, the gist of this passage is not that the words of Scripture are inspirational in the way a football coach's halftime speech might be, but rather that they are the breath or the expiration of God. Peter says essentially the same thing in the second letter he wrote. There we read, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, all the words delivered by the prophets had their ultimate origin with God, not with man. He worked in such a way that they did not corrupt the text in the process of delivering the message. Now, how exactly did this work? How were men carried along by the Holy Spirit? Did he place words in their minds, dictate the words to them? The Bible's not clear, which has left the topic open to speculation. During the medieval era, the dictation theory had some advocates. According to this way of thinking, the biblical authors simply recorded what God told them to write verbatim, acting as secretaries of the Holy Ghost. One painting from that era shows Matthew seated at a desk with a quill pen in his hand and the Holy Spirit seated on his shoulder in the form of a dove whispering the words into his ear. Today, nearly everyone rejects this idea for several reasons. About half of the Old and New Testament are narrative sections in which the writers are simply recording their own experiences. Secondly, some of the historical books, such as Kings and Chronicles, appear to be based on sources that existed at the time, suggesting that the writer researched and compiled the material, Thirdly, each author has their own unique style. Moses writes differently than David did, and Paul writes differently than Peter did. There is no indication that God circumvented their human personalities, but rather that he somehow conveyed his meaning through their unique style. So how did it happen? About all we can say with confidence is that the process of inspiration appears to be one by which the human authors were supernaturally influenced by God to write exactly what he wished to have written in order to communicate his truth to others, and that the Bible is not very concerned in explaining how the process of inspiration occurred and far more focused on establishing that God is the ultimate source of revelation. Vox Scriptura, Vox Dei, the voice of Scripture, is the voice of God. Claim number four. The Bible claims to be a necessary guide to our spiritual life. In point number one, I established that God has revealed himself in two ways, general and special revelation. I also noted that general revelation, in other words, that which is found in nature, history, and our conscience, is available to everyone, but while it is enough to persuade us that a God exists, it is insufficient to help us understand who God is. The fourth claim is that the Bible is absolutely necessary for us to know God in the way he wants to be known. Paul develops this idea in Romans 10 through a series of questions and answers. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all of the Israelites accepted the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. What this passage means is that if there was no Bible, we would not be able to learn enough about God on our own to ever really know him. Or, the Christian faith is utterly dependent upon the word of God incarnate, Jesus and the Word of God written, the Bible. Claim number five. The Bible claims to be the complete guide to our spiritual life. The Bible goes beyond stating that it's necessary in order for us to know God. It also claims that it contains everything we need to know in order to trust God and live a life pleasing to Him. This does not mean that knowing about God is the same thing as knowing Him. Many fail to make this distinction. The first can mean as little as understanding a set of ideas. The second is knowing him in a transformational way. This also does not mean that everything we need to know about everything is found in the Bible. In order to make it home tonight, you have to know where you live and how to drive. The Bible's so silent on both matters. Airplane pilots are expected to understand the principles of lift. Farmers are expected to understand crop rotation and tractor maintenance. None of this information is in the Bible. To say that the Bible is complete or sufficient does not mean that everything a person may need to know is found explicitly in a biblical text. Finally, claim number five does not suggest that everything there is to know about God is contained in the Bible. He makes no claims to have revealed all of himself to us. For starters, the idea that we could understand God in his entirety does not make any philosophical sense. The finite mind cannot fully comprehend the infinite any more than a paper cup can contain the Pacific Ocean. Additionally, Scripture specifically tells us that mystery is a significant part of our faith in this present age. What this doctrine actually teaches is that everything we need to know in order to know God and follow Him can be found by studying the Bible. The Westminster Confession of Faith states it this way, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Claim number six, the Bible claims to be understandable. The sixth claim the Bible makes about itself involves its clarity. It not only claims to be the primary vehicle through which God communicates his plan, it also claims that the message it delivers is understandable to anyone who truly wants to know the truth. This tenet, which theologians refer to as the perspicuity of Scripture, is developed in numerous passages in the Old Testament, such as Deuteronomy 6.6 and Psalm 19.7. There we see that the biblical writers assume that the central aspect of the Bible can be understood by children and simple-minded people. We also find in the New Testament where Christ never implies that people's confusion about spiritual matters is because the scriptures are confusing, but rather because they have not bothered to read them. 
The perspicuity of Scripture does not mean that everything contained in the Bible is easy to understand. In fact, passages such as 2 Timothy 2.15, which read, Study to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. This passage implies that not all of the truth contained in Scripture is easy to grasp. And as many students of Scripture know, there is no hope of ever mastering the Bible. Even passages that have long been memorized continue to yield deeper insights. Rather, the thrust of claim number six is that the main message of the Bible is understandable to those who care to understand it. This belief in the clarity of Scripture is what motivated the early Reformers to translate the Bible into the common languages of the people. For some time, the medieval church had withheld the Scriptures from all but the clergy, refusing to allow it to be translated out of Latin, which only the scholars and priests could read, because they did not believe that just anyone could understand it. For a period of several hundred years, they even went so far as to forbid lay people from reading it. Wycliffe, Huss, and Luther, among others, argued that the Bible should be placed in the hands of everyone for their own personal study because it was readily understood by those who read it. Given that the Westminster Confession is quite perspicacious about the perspicuity of Scripture, perhaps it's best to quote it here. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all, Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or another that they that not only the learned but the unlearned in due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Claim number seven. The Bible claims to be truth. In the second to last claim, the Bible argues that it is the ultimate earthly standard against which other claims to truth are measured. In the high priestly prayer recorded in John 17, Jesus asks his father to, quote, sanctify them by the truth, end of quote, and then states, your word is truth. Please note what he did not say. He did not state, your word is true. This would have been bold in and of itself. What Christ actually said, though, was much bolder. He said, your word is truth. In other words, the Bible claims to be the standard against which other claims of truth are measured. This is a remarkable claim, but one that is entirely consistent with the idea of special revelation. Think about it. God is understood to be holy, righteous, and trustworthy, Indeed, truth is one of his attributes. He cannot lie. His word, whether spoken or written, is an extension of him. Therefore, the Bible, which is his word, is completely trustworthy. The Bible does not claim to be one person's opinion, true most of the time, or true for some of the people. The Bible claims to be truth itself. This is why the first article in our church's statement of faith asserts that, in the end, when all truth is known, we will find that the Bible, all 66 canonical books in their original autographs and properly interpreted are always true in all they teach. Claim number eight. Finally, the Bible claims authority over our lives. From a biblical perspective, all authority ultimately rests with God. It does so not only because he is the creator, which carries with it rights of ownership and control, but also because he is both all-powerful and all-knowing. Who could God possibly report to? 
However, in the Bible, God's authority is often exercised by people who act on his behalf. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings step into this role. In the New Testament, the authority of God is first expressed in Jesus Christ and then expressed through the apostles who are understood to be direct and personal ambassadors of Christ. Beyond this, the Bible teaches that the Bible enjoys God's authority. As his word, it carries his power and is his primary means of exercising his authority over us. We see this in a variety of ways, such as Christ's scuffle with the Pharisees in Mark 7. In this account, they chastise him for allowing his disciples to eat food that has not been prepared according to their traditional practices. In response, Jesus says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. He then says, You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. There's plenty to learn here, but please pay attention to how Christ refers to the words of the Old Testament. They are, he claims, the commands of God. In other words, to disobey them is to disobey God. The same point can be made for the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 37, the Apostle Paul writes, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. Over 40 times the apostles repeat the statements, it is written, or scripture says, or according to the scriptures, as a source of proof. To them, if it has been written down by an apostle or endorsed by an apostle, then it has God's authority. They clearly believe that an unqualified authority rests in the written text itself. This has long been the view of the church. Scripture enjoys the authority of God. Whatever the Bible affirms, God affirms. To disobey the Bible is to disobey God. This is a radical claim. Now, at this point, I need to stop and acknowledge something that has been bothering some of you since shortly after this study began. In fact, some of you are probably rolling your eyes and started rolling your eyes about 10 pages ago because you believe that I'm making the classic rookie mistake of circular reasoning. Woodruff, you two-bit fool, can't you see what you're doing? You're telling us that we should trust the Bible and then supporting this idea by, by citing what the Bible says about itself. You can't do that. You cannot assume what needs to be proved in order to prove it. Anyone who's taken a freshman course in philosophy should know this. Except, that's not what I'm doing. I'm not trying to prove that the Bible has authority just yet. I am simply trying to prove that the Bible claims to have authority. There's a big difference. Why am I bothering to show that the Bible claims to have authority? Because while claiming to be inspired doesn't prove inspiration, the lack of the claim would be a real problem. Would you be inclined to believe God wrote something if the document never claimed to have been written by God? Finally, before you rehearse all of your arguments against circular reasoning, do realize that claims to ultimate authority are necessarily circular. Stay with me here. We're almost done. Most arguments prove their truthfulness by appealing to some higher source of truth. I prove I am right by citing a source more trustworthy than I am. But God, and by extension, God's word, cannot do this. Who could God appeal to? Think about this. If what you're trying to prove is that you are the highest source of truth, 
You cannot appeal to something higher than yourself to make your case. If you did, you would undermine it. Charges of circular reasoning are not just a problem for the Bible, but for every ultimate claim to truth. People who believe that reason should be primary source of authority do so because it seems like the reasonable thing to do. And people who ultimately trust their gut do so because that's what their gut tells them to do. When you make a claim to be the ultimate authority, you have to appeal back to yourself or you undermine your authority. So where are we? So where does this bring us? Well, so far we have established five major points. Number one, people believe many different things. There are a variety of opinions about what is really real floating around in the world today, perhaps as many as 6,000. These 6,000 approaches to life can be grouped according to the five basic worldviews. Point number two, where you start determines where you land. Each of the five worldviews hinge on your selection of truth. Do you prior, prioritize reason, revelation, experience, or tradition? Most people appeal to all four, but one is dominant. Whichever source you elevate over the others makes all the difference. Point number three, it is impossible to prove which starting point is correct. People have tried, but it's clear that in the end, some measure of faith is required for any of the options you select. Point number four, it is very important to select correctly. Your whole life flows out of your starting assumptions. Your source of truth will shape what you believe. What you believe will shape how you think, and what you think will shape how you live. This is an important decision, too important not to think about. Finally, the fifth point is the Bible claims to be the source of truth. The 66 books that comprise the Christian scriptures claim to be divinely inspired, the final source of truth, endowed with God's authority, and a clear and absolutely necessary guide for our salvation. If that's where we are, where do we go next? Well, it's clear that before too long, you're going to have to decide whether or not you have good reasons to believe the Bible's claims about itself. Can you trust the book? Is it really from God? That is our next study. If there's any way we can help you on your spiritual journey, please contact us at cclf.org or email us at fenceposts at cclf.org.